0: Well, it's uh, it's been a while since I've been up here. I was trying to think when I was down there, the last time I uh, preached from up here, and I can't remember. It's probably been a year or two. And uh, so I've gotten used to looking at the back of your heads. Uh, maybe you don't recognize me. I'm kind of familiar with the side of your face, maybe the back of your head. So it's good to see your face this morning. And uh, I, like Paul Martin, look forward to the gathering of the saints on Sunday as we minister our gifts to one another. So even if I don't look familiar to you, and there's a reason why, most of what I do uh, here at LVC is done on Monday through Friday in the basement of the church. So if I look a little pale, it's because our office has no windows below the stage here. So um, that's probably why I don't look familiar to you. No, but I do have the joy of leading uh, what we refer, we refer to as the West Institute. It's a ministry birthed from this church, of this church. And it's a partnership with Shepherds Theological Seminary, and it's our heartbeat to train and equip not just believers going into ministry, but every man and woman, uh, equip them with the scriptures, that their life would be lived in response to God's word. Uh, Another aspect of what we do, sometimes you'll hear Paul mention this, but you might be unfamiliar of it, and I kind of want to preach from this area uh, this morning, but uh, my wife and I have the the blessing of walking alongside of others in this church, along with uh, uh, a few other families, and we walk with fellow believers through difficult uh, seasons of life, through uh, struggles of sin, and some refer to this as counseling. I like to just simply refer to it as this walking alongside of one another. And we meet with individuals, uh, we meet with families, uh, we, we handle uh, married couples and the like. and. Uh, What's interesting is uh, those involved in that process uh, tend to be acutely aware of a few few things. One, and chief among them, there's several things that they seem to be aware of, but uh, that there is a brokenness in this world. And also the destructive nature of sin. They're, they tend to be very aware of those things. And uh, from, from that vantage point, I'd like to... Um, Preach to you from God's Word this morning. And, and before I do, I'd like to just talk about some of the things that we see as we do life with people in our midst. This isn't talking about the, you know, the, the church at large, but some of the struggles that are present in the lives of, of believers in this church. We, we see sexual immorality destroying individuals and couples and families, and I'm talking about all forms of that, whether that's pornography or adultery, you name it, there's so many variations of that, and it's destroying people and families. We see strong desires to obtain and to keep the things of this world, and people who have set their hearts on that are chasing after that, and it's destroying their lives. It's it's sad to watch. We also see folks who speak to others in anger. On a regular basis, they have a tremendous amount of bitterness in their hearts, malice towards one another's. And, and there's a whole other group that you can see that maybe not on Sundays, but uh, maybe the rest of the week, they, they live their lives. Foul, mangu- foul language is very common for them to use or lying in order to navigate uh, this world. Gossips and the sort. It's a pretty small list. But uh, if we think about that for a little bit, and being a pastor here on staff, uh, I don't think it's just those that I meet with that are well acquainted with those struggles, but everybody in this room is, is probably aware of, even if I didn't name something in that list that you're dealing with, we are all dealing with this tension, significant tension of, okay, I am bought, I'm indwelt with the Spirit Jesus is my Lord and Savior, yet there's these aspects of my life that are contrary to that. And how do I bring about change in my life? We, we know we're not called to live that way, and many believers want out of that. They don't know how to bring about that change. They're, they're stressed. They're tired of it. They would do anything to get out of that. And unfortunately, they're willing to adopt methods that aren't necessary, necessarily biblical to try to bring about change in their lives. And unfortunately, our Christian culture puts out several solutions for change. They have nice, cute slogans, empty promises, often uh, nice posters with verses taken out of context. Uh, and what's sad is that's peddled as the, as the hope for change. And when we don't see change come, we grow discouraged. Uh, we might even then look to the wisdom of the world, to our culture, which itself is peddling all forms of opportunities for change, whether that's through self-help, uh, whether that's through ways to modify your behavior, maybe even to, over to the extreme of, of even just loosing yourself from the confines of religion and ultimately just giving yourself what you desire or what you see your flesh desiring last week we saw pastor martin uh, preaching from matthew and we followed along in the text as jesus confronted those that were bringing a false message and a false hope and i was sitting out there last week thinking that's easy to see from this side um you know that the, these false teachers were standing on the presentation of the gospel side but what about on this side of salvation we've accepted Christ is there a, another false message or a false gospel that we can adopt in our lives that ultimately will destroy us life and lead us into hopelessness and i i think unfortunately there is so i'd like to reposition us this week, so last week we, were, we saw those that were standing on the way to salvation peddling a false message. This week we're gonna see a false message arise from within the church. A message that says there's a better way to bring change about in our life. And so as we, as believers, look at our life and we see this dichotomy, we, we feel this pressure, how do we address that? And I pray that God's word is going to answer that for us today. So let's pray as we begin to read from God's word. Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity uh, that, that we have this morning to not only read your word, but to understand it and to live in response to it. So I pray, Lord, that we would not only hear your word, but that it would bring deep and meaningful change to our life, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. And as you turn there, I'm going to be focused mainly on uh, a few verses, verses 12 through 17. But I always think it's really important that we understand where we're landing and to kind of paint a little picture of where we've come thus far in these three verses. So if you would spare me a few moments, I would like to kind of bring us up to where we are as we seek to address this question of how do we actually bring about biblical change in our life and ultimately what's the cause of biblical change in our life. You see, um, this church, Paul is writing to a group of believers, this church that has been established in Colossae, and he is well acquainted with them and he's well aware that they are uh, believers in every uh, sense of the term. You see, uh, Paul set up shop in Ephesus for three years, and it was during that time that he was teaching uh, daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And it says there that the gospel was going out and churches were being planted in Asia. All of Asia was being reached with the gospel. And it's our belief that during that time, uh, a man who is called out in this uh, text here named Epaphras likely was at Ephesus. We have record of him being there and took that message to Colossae and there was there a church established, and Paul uh, commends them for their faith. So these aren't uh, uh, Christians that are walking poorly with the Lord. These are Christians who love the Lord and are pursuing the Lord uh, to the best of their ability. Years later, after this church has been established, Paul is in prison. This is roughly three to four years later. He's in Rome in prison, and word comes to him that a a message, there's a group of people who have brought a false message into the church here at at Colossae, saying to the Colossian believers, no, there is a better way to see change in your life. And Paul is aware of some of the struggles that are going on uh, in the life of the believers in Colossians. He even calls them out for this. He doesn't uh, shame them over this, he makes a list of some of their struggles, and he says, no, 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 you don't bring change any other way but then one way, and we're going to get to that way in just a minute. But in, in chapter 3, he labels some of the struggles that are going on in this church, and I'd just like to read them for you. They're verses 3 through 9. He identifies sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, idolatry, anger, Malice, slander, lying, and obscene talk. Sound familiar? And uh, as I was sitting uh, last week in the pew just listening to Pastor Martin, uh, I was reminded that though there have been false messages, often they're repeated again and again uh, in our world to different generations. And this false message that was being pushed in this church was that Yes, these, there are issues in your life, but there's a different way to bring about change that is different than the gospel. There's a better way of doing it. And it has three categories. This false message was kind of contained within three different, uh, sometimes related categories. And I'll summarize them for you. First was a form of legalism. This whole idea of don't do these things and do these things. And right, legalism is this man centered approach to bring about righteousness in our life. Another branch of this false teaching, this false gospel, was this way of asceticism, of, of inflicting ourselves with pain or harming our body in order to bring about the results that we want. Another form, was this mysticism or this religious experience, a belief that angels could usher uh, you into the presence of God, and with that came visions and a deeper, more profound experience with our Creator, that that would bring about change for those in the church uh, at Colossae. And he says, no, none of these things have any value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And so by the time we get to chapter three, he begins to tell them what to do. He's, he, in chapters one and two, reminds them of the supremacy of Christ, all that they have, that they have been bought and rescued and redeemed. He reminds them of that. And then in chapter three, he instructs them what to do. The first thing that he tells them to do in verse, verses one and two is to seek the things that are above and to set their minds on the things that are above. And he's going to explain here in a few verses where we are, what that looks like. And then he's going to tell them to put off their old ways. And that's where he labels those things that, they, that, are, that are present in their life. He tells them to put those to death, those things that are earthly in you. And then he gets to verse 12, which is where we will pick that up. And so he's told them to set their minds and their hearts on the things that are above to set aside, to put off these, these earthly things that are in them, and then he's going to tell them to put on. So let's read these passages. We'll just read the, the section of scripture in its entirety, and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit, one verse at a time. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's just take this a verse at a time. And I honestly, you know, I could say pretty much every passage in Scripture is one of my favorite passages. There's so many of them. But this passage speaks to what biblical change looks like in profound ways and I pray that you would uh, read it often and not just these verses but you would read the book of Colossians. It takes about 20 minutes just to read the whole book in one setting and I'd encourage you to acquaint yourself with it because what Paul was dealing with in this culture translates to what we're dealing with in our culture today. So let's look at verse 12 first and and verse 12 is really looking at what we should be doing. He has told them to to think of the things that are above set their minds and their hearts on the things that are above, to put off these old ways. And now getting to the answering the question of what should we be doing? He says to put on or another way of translating that would be to clothe yourselves and he's going to name five attributes that they should be clothing themselves with. And most scholars agree that these attributes are the very attributes of Christ. So he says, put these things on, but he doesn't just leave it there. Before he gets to those, he identifies a couple of really important things that uh, are very meaningful to us. And if we don't spend some time to take notice of them, we'll be missing one of the key elements that actually brings change into our life. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy And beloved, and maybe these terms or phrases don't jump off the page to you, but uh, this concept of a chosen one is a very precious term used throughout all of the scriptures. God often speaks it of his chosen nation, Israel. And here, in a very Gentile setting, he's applying this unique term to those who know him, those who are of true, they're true believers who are struggling with these issues in their life. And he's, he's saying, he's making an identity level statement here. He's saying you are chosen and because you are chosen of God, you are holy and beloved. Meaning you are set aside, you are special, and God's affectionate love is placed on you. So he starts with their identity, who they are in Christ. And then he says, because of who you are in Christ, clothe yourselves with these attributes. He's going to name five attributes. And as we read through these, um, they're they're hard to sometimes see the difference between them. And and I think it's helpful if we look at them kind of like a Venn diagram. You remember that from like uh, ninth grade science class, right? The Venn diagram, the circles that overlap, right? Uh, If you see these five attributes, one overlapping the next... And then there is going to be a sixth one, which is going to come in a few verses, and it's going to be the common thread that ties them all together. So let's look at these attributes that they are supposed to be clothing themselves with. He says to clothe yourself with a compassionate heart, and I wish we had more time uh, than we do this morning to, to... break down each one of these you could probably do a sermon on each one of these Uh, most of them are connected not only to the new testament but these concepts are derived from the old testament it's this carries with it this this understanding of this deep inner conviction to show mercy is really the weight that he is bringing forth here when he says clothe yourselves with compassionate hearts. And what greater example do we need than Christ laying down his life on our behalf? This deep conviction to show mercy where it's not always deserved. They are then to clothe themselves with kindness or some uh, translations translated with goodness. And this again is a, a word that's used throughout the scriptures to talk about the goodness of God. And often in very tangible ways, as believers receive blessings in their life, they, they talk about them as the goodness that they have received from the Lord, these very concrete ways in which God shows his affection. And so they're, su- they're supposed to clothe themselves uh, and, and give to one another these undeserved blessings. They're to be known to carry these attributes. Next is humility. And this Uh, we don't need to say much more than this is ultimately modeled for us in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is is an entire passage of Scripture, an entire chapter written about Christ condescending, humiliating himself to man. Though he was in the form of God, he took on flesh. Right? He humbled himself, and that's an attribute that in the Roman world was not looked upon well. It was actually spoken against. You don't humble yourself. That's what a servant does. But Christ models that, and here we are called to clothe ourselves with humility. The next one is with gentleness. You'll sometimes see it translated as meekness. And this, this one's interesting because it, it really explains how we're to approach one another. Uh, God, when, when, when Jesus, God in the flesh, arrives How does he bring about his kingdom? He even says, I don't bring about, when he's talking to Pilate, I don't bring about my kingdom by the sword. I bring it about by laying down my life. Though he possessed all the power in the world, he brought about change and redemption through laying down his life. That's what it means to be meek. It's not to not possess power. It's to use it well. And we model this most when we bear one another's burdens when we care for one another, when we lay down our own desires and we seek those. And the last one in this group of five is patience. It carries with this uh, not just patience in the moment, it carries with it an idea of long-term, long-enduring suffering, to be patient. And it's connected to how we relate to one another. And as you make your way through these, you can see that, our culture, just like the Roman culture, does not celebrate or honor these attributes. They're often viewed as weakness. And it's not ultimately how you obtain what you want. And, I, and as we have kind of finished this first set, I think it's really important to just hit pause for a second. Because uh, if you're like me, maybe you're wondering, okay, okay. So Paul is writing to this group who, who they, they love the Lord, they see these things going on in their life. Paul is aware of these issues that are in their life and he's saying, no, the solution is not to, to have a greater experience with the Lord. The solution is not to clothe yourself with man-made attempts of legalism or to harm your body. That's not how you bring about change. You bring about change by clothing yourselves with these things. And when you read these two lists, you're like, okay, how does, how does stopping sexual immorality... How do you find that in putting on these, these elements here? Well, if you take a step back and you actually look at those lists, what, one of the first things that should jump off the page of you when you're in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3 is all of those issues arrive with a focus on self. Every single one of those issues arrive in our life when our hearts are focused on ourselves. And he is saying, yeah, you need to stop doing that, but your solution is actually to focus on two things. One, your identity in Christ, who you are in God, and to be others-focused. And I hope that you can see the importance to that. And there's going to be more to that, and he's going to unpack more here in just a little bit. But it's important that we don't skip over that right now. Ever since the fall, when man said, There is something outside that God has not yet given me. I will obtain it for myself, and it will be for my good. Right? That's the the opening line of the the act. When Eve takes the apple, she says that I can obtain something that God has not yet given me, and it will be for my good. From that moment going forward in human history, we have sought everything with an independent spirit against God and to soothe ourselves with everything that ultimately we're trying to bring ourselves. And you look at that whole list— all of that is connected to a worship of self. And ultimately change occurs when our hearts are redirected to who we are in the Lord. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. So in verses 12 we were looking at what we should be doing. We should be clothing ourselves with these things. Now these, uh, these verses are going to be d- describing for us how and when we should be doing what we're doing. Does that make sense? So we're supposed to be clothing ourselves. Okay, so when do we do that? And I appreciate these verses so much because it would be easy to say, okay, great, I have no problem clothing myself with these attributes as long as the people in my life are in agreement with me. There's not d- difficulty arising from any sort of circumstance or person in my life. But verses 13 and 14 tell us how and when we should be doing these, this, cl- this act of clothing ourselves or as uh, the ESV translates it, to put on these garments. It says this in 13, you're to do this bearing with one another and if one another has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord God has forgiven you, so also you must forgive one another. So it's not just in the good times that we clothe ourselves with these attributes. in the, It's actually in the midst of difficulty. And so these two adverbial phrases here tell us exactly what we should be doing and when we should be doing it as we clothe ourselves we bear with one another why recognizing that we're not yet perfect and we forgive one another and he identifies that there's going to be complaints both you sinning against someone else and others sinning against you so when we see sin in our own life or sin in our marriage or in our relationships how do we ultimately see change one is we clothe ourselves with the identity of Christ, but then we prepare ourselves to forgive one another and bear one another's burdens. To me, I think we have missed uh, this in significant ways in our personal lives and in our relationships. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And then he gets to the last attribute of all, the sixth attribute, and in verse 14, he says that above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the word he uses here is agape, and it's, it's super instructive, and it, it's really helpful when we understand it, how it ties them all together. It's the common thread that runs through those five characteristics. Agape love carries with it this understanding that it is an act of the will. It is a choice to do something to someone who does not necessarily deserve it. And so we clothe ourselves with these attributes, with Christ being our chief example of the one who laid down his life for us while we were his enemies. He made a conscious choice to do that while we were his enemies. And it's that, this idea of love that will enable us to, not enable us, but it will hold all those attributes Together in verses 15 and 16, he's actually going to be talking about. And if you're like me, you're like, "Okay, this is great. Uh, that's a really high high standard. Uh, I know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but I often uh, don't do it this way in my life, uh, in my relationships." So verses 15 and 16 to me are the the two most important uh, verses in this whole passage. They unpack for us what enables us. To do this, And they're really ultimately, I think, going to help us understand what it means to set our minds. You remember back in verse 1, Paul says, Set your minds, set your hearts on things that are above. Seek those things. Well, he didn't leave them uh, without instruction on how to do that. It's not just some sort of idyllic poster statement. He tells them exactly how to do this. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. And in verse 15 and 16, he's going to have two very unique phrases. And if you're in the commentaries and you're reading them, uh, you'll see they're kind of all over the place. They don't really know how to take them or interpret them. Like it says, the word of Christ, it says, the peace of Christ. These are unique phrases. Paul doesn't use them in other places. But uh, we just got done with a class in hermeneutics uh, in the West Institute, and one of the best ways to read your Bible is through context. Paul isn't hoping that some other letter would arrive from some other author that might explain what it means, what the word of Christ means, or what the peace of Christ means. He tells them earlier uh, in verse or in chapter one, in fact, what he's talking about, and he's just hearkening back to what he's already. Uh, said to them, So turn uh, to chapter one, and we'll under, he'll help us understand what the peace of Christ is. Chapter one, look at verse 19. I want you to have your finger on it so that we will all see, and it 's going to go through 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. he 's speaking of Christ here, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood. Of the cross, So what is the peace of Christ? It's another way of emphasizing the gospel. It's another way of saying the gospel. And what does he say? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your life. And to me, this concept is significant. It's this understanding that we are now, as believers, in a right relationship with God that we understand who he is, we understand our purpose on this earth, where our value comes from, what we're supposed to be doing with our time, our efforts, and our energies, what our affections should be set on. We have been restored in our relationship with God. So we have been redeemed vertically. And he's saying, now that should rule in your life. And the word there, ultimately means it should determine what you do. So because we are rightly related vertically, we can then rightly relate to things horizontally. I don't have to use anger to get what I want. I don't have to try to find worth in value in pornography, or you find worth and value in sexual immorality, or an attempt to control, or look at that whole list, it's a pursuit of self. And what he's saying is ultimately what will determine what you do is understanding that you have been rightly related to God, and let that Rule, And he actually says that that will not only rule you, but it will bring about unity in a diverse gathering. It says, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. And then he says this in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love how he adds the adjectives. And don't just, not just the word, but it's to dwell, and it's not just to dwell. The idea there in dwelling is it's supposed to take residence. But it's not just to dwell, it's to dwell richly. Okay, so what? how do we understand the word of Christ? This is a totally unique phrase found nowhere else. It's not the words of Christ, it's not the teachings of Christ. Um, it would be easy to, to say that, and it's said numerous places the teachings of Christ, but he, he's not phrasing it that way. He says the word of Again, Paul doesn't uh, hope that some other letter will arrive someday that will help explain it. He already tells them what the word, the logos of Christ means. Look in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, which is the gospel. Or the logos of truth, which is the gospel. So another way of saying that the gospel, the fact that we have been rightly related to God, we now have a future hope. We're not setting our affections on the things of this world anymore. We have something greater that we ought to be pursuing, and that is to dwell among us richly. That's what we should be consuming. And then he labels like How encompassing that ought to be in our life, right? Uh, It it should be in our teaching, in our admonishment to one another. It should be the center of what we would call wise counsel. It should uh, encompass every area of our life, including singing songs and hymns. Uh, It should encompass every area of our life. And I would ask you this question, what are our lives filled with? Often false messages, false hopes, false teachings. And it's one of the chief reasons why we continue to go back to the earthly ways in our lives. And he's trying to rightly relate them, saying, no, there is no hope. There is no value. Those things can bring no change to you. You already possess all the change you need. And you need to live out of that, knowing that you've been rightly reconciled to God, you don't, and because you're vertically related, you don't have to seek things horizontally anymore. I am now free to love my brother, even if he sins against me. I don't need him to affirm me. I don't need my wife to give me my worth and value. I don't need some sort of relationship to, to ponder uh, some romantic fantasy I have everything I need in Christ and that, living out of that is what will bring change in my life. Remember, Paul told them to seek the things that are above and to set their minds on the things that are above and that's exactly what he just told them to do and I would implore you to do likewise, not just today, but in every day of your life Verse 17, he says, and whatever you do as you go in this life, in word or deed, no matter if you're doing some sort of physical act or if you're walking somewhere, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What will enable you to live this life is clothing yourselves with the attribute of Christ, living out your identity, and as you go, you will be a light in this world. Your marriage, your relationships, how you relate to things horizontally will be dramatically changed and who should receive the praise and the glory for that? The Lord. And he says to give them thanks. To give God thanks. So I challenge you this morning, I want you to ask yourself four questions as we leave this place. Is the gospel and its realities, the present realities that we're rightly related with the Lord? Is it ruling and dwelling in your life? Two, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I clothing myself with the attributes of Christ? Three, while I'm clothing myself with the attributes of Christ, am I bearing with and forgiving others the last question I want you to ask yourself not only today but the rest of the life or the rest of your life is am I seeking horizontally what I've already been given vertically then as we move beyond just asking ourselves those questions I want you I want us as a corporate body to consider some things this morning Are we exhorting one another to clothe ourselves with the attributes of Christ? Or are we simply giving the world's counsel to one another as we see problems in relationships, whether you're single, you're married, doesn't matter. Are we just offering the wisdom of the world to one another? Are we giving each other platitudes? Or are we teaching and admonishing? And that word admonishment is a good thing. It's to correct. It carries with this idea of correction. It's my prayer that not only would the gospel rule and dwell in our personal lives, but that it would define how we gather together in this place. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord. You're probably well acquainted with several things that uh, might need to change in your life. And I just want to be honest with you. You don't possess anything that can bring about true change. You can modify your behavior. You can try to... uh, give to one another uh, different things, but ultimately everything that is not rooted and grounded in Christ will expire. You can only love so long when it's not rooted in Christ. All those attributes will expire. There's no way to sustain that over time. So if you don't know Christ this morning, we'd love to, to share the gospel with you. You've seen some of it here this morning. And so myself and the elders will be down here after the service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we don't have to uh, harm ourselves to bring about change, Lord. We thank you that you have made change possible and that we have a hope, one that is not connected to this world. I pray that our affections and our hearts would be set on you this morning, Lord. Pray that as we clothe ourselves with you, that we would understand that we are now rightly related to you. Therefore, we can rightly relate to one another, and we can rightly relate to the things of this world. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.